from your word specifically into each one of our hearts and lives. Lord, we are all at different places, spiritually, uh, physically, Lord, where we are, stages of life, the temptations that we are facing, the victories that are ours. We are all in different places, but I pray that you would speak through your word this morning powerfully to each of us. And I ask that these verses that we look at and all that is said and done this morning would point us to you. Father, we pray as, as we read the scriptures that mostly that the scriptures would, would read us and that we would be changed from who we are into a more beautiful, a more passionate, uh, a, a more loving representation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you would open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah, uh, Micah chapter 5. Maybe you uh, have a finger in there from the uh, scripture reading. If you don't, uh, you can grab one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And Micah 5 is on page 778 uh, in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you or behind you. As you're uh, looking for this a little book, that most of us are not too familiar with. Let me just set um, the stage a little bit. In fact, let me, let's go back to Micah 1 for just a moment. Micah chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. Moresheth is not one of the more well-known places that is mentioned in Scripture. It is a small town. I think of it as a place much smaller even than Auburn. It is a place that is out there. And Micah is this prophet who has been called to proclaim repentance to the people, to his contemporaries. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, We're talking nearly a thousand years, 800 years or so before the time of Christ. And Micah has come because the people of God had had turned away from him. And a huge portion of the people of God, the nation of Israel at this time, had become extremely wealthy. They had very nice homes. They had lots and lots of parties. And they loved to party. I think there's almost some humor here. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 11, he is prophesying about what kind of prophet they would listen to, uh, the contemporaries of Micah. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, He would be just the prophet for this people. That is the setting that Micah comes into. And he comes into a setting where he is calling people to repentance. He is calling them to turn from their ways and to embrace God and also to deliver a message of judgment and a message of hope. And if we turn forward again now to chapter 5, we see in verse 1 this message of judgment followed by this prophetic message of hope, which is going to be our focus in this book. But look at verse 1, chapter 5. It says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now in verse 1, we're in the, we're in the contemporary setting of, of Micah's day. And if we had more time and were able to look at the book of Micah more fully, we would see that it was God's intention and plan to bring judgment on these people through neighboring armies that were going to come in and physically destroy them and punish them because of their sin. And that is basically what is mentioned here in verse 1, that this 
that there's going to be rulers that are going to come in. There are going to be enemies of Israel that are going to come in and take them out on the cheek with a rod. So we have this statement of doom, but then we have this prophecy of hope that comes in verses 2 through 5. Let's take a look at verses 2 and 3 to begin. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So let's unfold, uh, unpack this prophecy here. Uh, The the prophecy that is coming is that you, uh, Bethlehem, though you are small, like the town that Micah himself was from, though you are small, out of you is going to come this great ruler. Uh, He is going to be a ruler over Israel. And of course, any Israelite or Jew that would be reading this passage or, or hearing this sermon would think about the ruler that we have been looking at much of the year of 2010 as Pastor Adam has been preaching through First and Second Samuel. They would, of course, be thinking about another ruler who came from Bethlehem. Do you remember his father, Jesse? He's in Bethlehem, and this is where he's going to come from. And this very unlikely king uh, is chosen, the, the shortest one, the one that wouldn't, you, you, you wouldn't expect. And so there are all these kinds of themes here present in this text But there is something very different about this next ruler who's going to come from the same place that David came. Uh, He's not going to be just a man after God's own heart. He's not going to be a ruler with a small r or a messiah with a small m who fails miserably as a sinner in life as you and I do. This ruler is going to be very different. Notice at the end of verse 2 we see this difference. It says his origins are from of old or from ancient times. Uh, The New American Standard Bible here translates this from the days of eternity. And so what we have here is a description not just about the Davidic line, but about the ruler who's going to come, who's going to be born in Bethlehem, that he has always existed is what this text is saying. From the days of eternity, he has always been. This is a unique kind of ruler the kind of ruler that that Micah's contemporaries need, and the kind of ruler that you and I need in our lives today. This is what we are celebrating, his coming, this great ruler. So we have this message of hope in verses uh, 2 and 3. Look at verse 3 briefly. It says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. Now, some uh, understand the she, the the pronoun that's mentioned here is referring to Mary. And although that's possible, I think really what this is saying is that Israel, the nation, is going to be abandoned until the time when she, Israel, is in labor and gives birth to the rest of his brothers. And there's going to be this great union of God's people, uh, this great unity of God's people that, that comes about through the coming of this king of kings who's going to bring Jew and Gentile and rich and poor and slave and free and all kinds of diverse peoples together. That is what this passage is saying. And if we had time, we could look back in chapter four where this metaphor of, of uh, a woman in labor is used already uh, referring to Jerusalem and Israel. So this is, uh, th- this is great hope that is given to, to, to the people, but to us this morning, that Israel was going to be abandoned, it says in verse 3. And indeed, history 
uh, confirms what was prophesied here from 586 B.C. until the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Israel was without a king. And so there was this anticipation. There was this longing for this Messiah who was going to come. And he is our hope. That's what I want us to see in these first few verses. I'm going to have kind of four main points this morning as we uh, journey through here. And the first one is simply that Christ is our hope. Fighting with my thing once again there. There it is. You got it for a second. Christ is our hope. Uh, He is our hope. And I I want you to hear that this morning. I had a a great experience on Thursday morning. Uh, Pastor Adam mentioned the gathering in uh, that we're going to have here on Wednesday. And we have another ministry that happens every uh, Thursday morning where we take this brown van that's parked out in the parking lot here. You'll see it on your way out. And uh, we minister to the folks who are living on the street here in Auburn. And we have all kinds of supplies for them. And we've been giving out all the socks that you have been bringing in. And they have been very, very happy to get those socks, but they also get food and a variety of other things. But on Thursday morning, I'm standing there uh, talking with one guy, and we're just kind of talking away. And this other guy rides up on his bicycle, and he kind of joins in our conversation. In fact, he totally displaces the conversation, and the other guy leaves, and we just start to talk. And within just seconds, uh, I'm aware of the vibrant faith of this guy. And we are talking about the Lord. We're talking about the Word. His name's Cyrus. Some of you may have met Cyrus and we are just talking about the Lord, and we are going on and on and on for like 20 minutes, and it seemed like forever. Finally, he looks at his watch, and, and he says, oh, I got to go meet somebody, and, I, and I'm looking at him, and I said, well, aren't you going to get some socks or some food, or this is a guy who's, who's living in a tent uh, in the woods here around Auburn. It's amazing. I, I, my guess is there's probably at least a uh, hundred folks or so that, that are living that way, within walking distance of almost all of our grocery stores. There's people living in the woods in different places, and he's one of them. And so we finished this conversation, and uh, I, I'm thinking, you know, you came to get this stuff. And, and he says, well, uh, we come to get stuff, but I also come here for, for the fellowship, for the community. And here's this guy, uh, you know, I, I'm putting myself in his shoes, and I'm thinking, man, my hope would be in this van and coming here to get these things. But his hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ and being encouraged and and being blessed by just interacting with others uh, about the Lord and having some community, and he drove off. And that that is one of the things that the Lord wants us to see in this passage, that Christ Jesus alone is our hope. Uh, A second thing that he wants us to see is that he is our peace. And we're going to see that in the next couple verses. Let's come back to verses 4 and 5 of Micah 5. This is a prophetic passage about what is going to happen written nearly a thousand years before Jesus' birth. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock. That's us. We are his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they, this is a prophecy about us, those who who would follow after Christ's birth, they will live securely For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. He will be their peace. He is now to look at it from this perspective of the cross, this perspective of the birth of Christ. He is to be our peace. It's the second thing I really want us to hear this morning from God's word, that Christ alone is to be our peace. It is not primarily our relationships with our spouses, or our children, or our grandchildren, or our friends. 
It is not primarily the stuff that we have. It is not our job or our retirement or our security uh, in in a 401k or, or, or some pension plan. Our peace is not to come primarily and ultimately from those things. Our peace is to come from the Lord Jesus. But it is hard to really know that about yourself unless you have an experience where he is all you have. Um, It is very rare that any one of us is going to basically lose everything, where we are totally alone, uh, totally isolated, and all that we have is the Lord Jesus. The message of the gospel, the message of the Bible, is if that happens to us, he will see us through. Because the reality is that this life is not our home if we are his children. And we are moving toward a new place, a new heavenly city. The Bible describes us as aliens and strangers. And so no matter what comes our way in this life, if he is our peace, we can make it through. I want to share with you a story of a man who lost everything he had. It is a terrible and tragic story. His name is uh, Mike Turner. Mike was a pastor in Idaho, and his congregation uh, gave him an extended uh, sabbatical. And he went through most of this time off away from the church, and then he was finishing and culminating his sabbatical with a 10-day, what would have been a 10-day backpacking trip in the Wyoming wilderness, in the Fitzpatrick wilderness. He did it with his dog. This is a picture of him here. And he was doing a solo trip for 10 days. And Mike had a tragic and terrible experience while he was out there. He was hiking off trail, going cross country. He was going over a bunch of 12,000 plus foot passes. Not rock climbing, just hiking with his backpack on his back and with his dog at his side. He's going over one of these passes, and he's above the tree line. It's just boulders and and stones and things, and he's kind of coming down the side of this mountain. And he hits the rocks just just the most wrong way that you could, and he becomes pinned between two boulders. They're described as about the size of a Mini Cooper or a Volkswagen. Above the knees, his uh, his feet are hanging, suspended in the air, and he is... Very, very concerned for his life. He's got his backpack on. He gets his pack off. He gets his things all uh, set aside. He has uh, some small amount of food, water, his Bible, a journal. He gets these things out. He struggles to try to free himself, and it just doesn't seem like that's going to be possible. Backpacker Magazine uh, had this tremendous and terrible article about this experience, and I want to share with you some of what he wrote in his journal that was in this uh, magazine article. This is uh, from his journal. He wrote, About two hours ago, a large rock rolled upon me and trapped my legs. The journal entry reads in scrawling, jagged letters. Uh, Again, quoting his journal, I was very careful, be sure of that, but I hurt. I am in your hands, Lord. I don't know what I face. He went through this terrible battle that we know a lot about because he wrote and he wrote, and he wrote. He filled every page of his journal. He started to write in the margins of his Bible. He wrote on the instruction pages of his camp stove. Part of his struggling time as he is out there for days 
He writes, God is with me, but I'm angry with him. Why this terrible injustice? Or is it the product of pride? This sense of wrestling against God. What can I do against God? I don't want to be fighting against God's will. How am I failing him? What is the purpose of this ordeal? Will I ever know or continue to be puzzled, angered, and feel quite abandoned by the one I serve? He went through these phases of of struggle and desperation and crying out, just like any of us would. But his journal moves into a direction where we see very clearly peace in his life, the kind of peace that Micah 5.5 speaks of. So lonely, more than I imagined. Who would have guessed that four days would have gone by and no one has come this way? Alone in a way few people experience, Turner had only the biblical promise that nothing, and and then he quotes, his journal quotes this, neither death nor life nor angels nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. He's quoting Romans 8 there. He's writing out scripture, encouraging himself that nothing will separate me peace of God is in him. One of his last entries, he writes this, fill me with peace, Lord. May the conditions not deny my love for you. I am ready to die, though missing my family. He had a wife and two children. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I will trust in God, though he will slay me, yet will I trust him. He is the way, the truth, the life. God loves couldn't read the word there. His last words were God loves, I think it was probably his kids' names, his wife's name, love dad, Mike. And he, uh, he died after 10 days between those rocks and was found weeks later when his uh, dog stayed by his side, presumably, for weeks. His dog came out to the uh, trailhead some weeks later and was found. The reason I share this story with us is to highlight the hope that we have in Jesus Christ alone. Although none of us will experience anything like what he's experienced, the gospel of Jesus Christ can provide hope for whatever is going to come into your life or my life to see us through should we lose everything. That is That is the message that Micah is giving to these people, his contemporaries, and to us today, that we can have hope no matter what our situation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our peace. Let's come back to um, this passage. In fact, let's let's go to the fulfillment of this passage. Let's flip our our Bibles over to Luke chapter 2. I want to look at the fulfillment. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is going to come. A thousand years before he came, Micah wrote, and then we see this fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. And I just want to briefly go through verses 1 through 7. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And just some background of what is going on here. Uh, This was basically tax time. This is how they... uh, kept track of who was where and how they collected taxes. So that that was the the setting. Luke is letting us in and what was going on. So everyone needed to go and register so that they could be taxed. Verse 2, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph 
also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. What I want us to see here as we transition from this prophecy in Micah to this fulfillment in Luke that we are also familiar with is the amazing, sovereign working out of God's plan. We have a family, Mary and Joseph, who live in Nazareth. And we have a prophecy that Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. And we have a Roman Empire that has called for this tax uh, to happen. And, and, And what we are seeing here, one of the things that we should take away from this passage is that the God of the Bible is incomprehensibly sovereign. And he is worth trusting. He is worthy to be trusted no matter what our situation in life. This is, this is the kind of God that we serve, that he is orchestrating and planning all things in a way that is mysterious and incomprehensible. We're not puppets. These people weren't puppets. We're not puppets. He's not pulling strings. And yet God is so powerful and awesome that he has the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem just as it was prophesied through all of these various Uh, various things that took place. So the God of the Bible is incomprehensibly sovereign is the third of of four things I want us to hang our hats on uh, this morning. A couple comments about that. One commentator writes this. He says, Luke portrays Augustus as the unknowing agent of God. This is the, the Roman guy who makes this decree, whose decree leads to the fulfillment of the promised rise of a special ruler from Bethlehem. Matthew Henry writes this, See how a man purposes and God disposes, and how providence orders all things for the fulfilling of the Scripture and makes use of the projects men have for serving their own purposes quite beyond their intention to serve his. The Roman Empire has a purpose, just to tax people. But God has a a, a more incredible, more awesome plan that is going to be accomplished even without them understanding it. It is beyond their intention. And God is served. That is the kind of God that we worship. He is all-knowing. He is all-sovereign. He is all-powerful. And he is accomplishing his plan. Let's come back to these last couple verses, verses 5 and following of Luke 2. He went there. Uh, Joseph went there with, to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The word in here may be a little misleading for us. This wasn't a a Ritz-Carlton or a Motel 6 even that they didn't get into. This would have just been some kind of public shelter, very primitive place, that those who were traveling through could stay. And there wasn't room there. And so uh, the Savior of the world, the, the Messiah with a capital M, uh, was born basically in a barn of sorts and is placed in, in a manger or in a feeding trough. It is an amazing set of circumstances that we read about here. Uh, one uh, one of the early church leaders, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, wrote this. He wrote, When the child was born in Bethlehem, since Joseph uh, could not find a lodging in that village, he took up his quarters in a certain cave near the village. 
We don't know for certain whether it was a cave or not, but often barns or, or stalls uh, were, were, were in caves at that time. What we do know is that, that the Savior of the world was, was laid to rest in, in a barn in a feeding trough. And we know that the circumstances that were in Joseph and Mary's life here were extremely unwelcoming. Not just the birth situation, but just getting to Bethlehem. Remember, they were in Nazareth. And there's this, this call, tax day, if you will. And they go, uh, it would have been about a 90-mile journey if they were going to bypass Samaria. This would have taken three or four days. Joseph probably walked. Mary probably was on a donkey. The scripture doesn't tell us that. About to give birth. This huge journey. Uh, this, this is just crazy. This is a hugely unwelcome situation and circumstance. And what I want us to see finally, the, the fourth and, and final point that I have this morning, is that God often allows unwelcome situations in our lives that often prove critical in his plans. Now, obviously, our, his plans for us are not going to be to carry the Savior. But he has plans for you, and he has plans for me. And sometimes we, we all have these unwelcome situations that come into our lives that are as diverse as, as we are here this morning. And, and occasionally God delivers us from those things. But my experience is more often than not, he sees us through them and wants to change us and refine us and make us more like Christ through these unwelcome situations and circumstances. And so what the Lord is looking for us often is to humbly submit to them and to follow him. I want to finish up our time this morning by showing you a brief uh, video. This uh, video is about a young man named Patrick Henry Hughes. I'm going to show you a picture of him here if I can get it to come up. Thank you, Mark. And I really don't need to say a whole lot. You need to just watch this video. I'm showing it to you because, especially from the perspective of his parents, for whom there was a very unwelcome situation at the time of his birth. Let's take a look at this. The piece is titled Claire de Lune, Light of the Moon. In the darkness of his eyes and through the sweetness of his hands, when Patrick Hughes plays, it is the music of possibility and the sound of promise. How would you describe your disabilities? Not disabilities at all, more abilities. Abilities everybody hears and sees at every Louisville football game. To understand how Patrick Hughes and his father became a two-person member of the Cardinal Marching Band, go back to when the music began. Born without eyes and with a tightening of the joints that prevents his limbs from ever straightening, Patrick has been blind and crippled from birth. It's just countless the number of dreams that, that died and my wife and I were devastated. We just asked why us. We played by all the rules. We worked hard. We just didn't understand. Kisses for Dad. 
That heartbreak began to fade even before Patrick's first birthday from his first moments at the family's piano in Louisville, Kentucky. You could go up and, and hit a note no matter where it was on the, on the piano and within a, one or two tries he would find that exact note. By his second birthday, he was playing requests. Can you play You Are My Sunshine? Say Twinkle. I was just ecstatic that, you know, okay, we're not going to play baseball, but we're going to play music together. And that was, that was really exciting. Let's see how far we can run with this. Fitted with artificial eyes and placed in a wheelchair, as Patrick grew, so did his passion and his talent. He played old standards by grade school and blues numbers by high school. By the time he arrived at the University of Louisville this year, his musical ability on piano as well as trumpet was well known throughout the city. I said, Patrick, you need to be a part of the marching band. <laughs> and their reaction was um, just a little bit of a pause. My dad and I are hearing this and we're like, uh, right. I mean, how in the heck am I supposed to march? The next step was working out what we needed to make happen in order for Patrick to be involved in the marching band, other than just parking on the sidelines and playing his instrument. I said, well, if Dr. Burns that impassioned about it and Patrick wants to do it, then by golly, I'll give it my all as well. So it was decided Patrick would play and Dad would push. As part of the 214-member Louisville Marching Band, a blind and wheelchair-bound trumpet player and his able-bodied father do it all together. From the pre-game drill practice, to the march around the stadium, to the halftime performance in front of thousands. Dad rolls and rotates his son across the field in mostly perfect formation. He'll sometimes end up pushing me a little quicker than normal, so that pretty much means, hey, must have done something wrong, so he, he's got to hurry up to get me to the right spot. Dip. In order to be at every band practice, I'm too slow on the spin. And to sit beside his son in every class. Question? Yes. How do you come up with all the Patrick's father works the graveyard shift for UPS. How would you describe a work day for your dad? Poor thing. Uh, he goes to work about eleven o'clock at night, Monday through Thursday nights, and then gets in at about six. And, and goes to bed at about 6 and sleeps till around 11. By the time Patrick moves from his bed into his wheelchair each morning, Dad is ready to begin their day together. He's, he's my hero. I've told him before. Uh, what he goes through, it's taught me that I don't really have any complaints. I guess a father couldn't ask for, for any more than, than the relationship that I have with Patrick. God made me blind and unable to 
walk, big deal. He gave me the ability to, the musical gifts I have and the great opportunity to meet new people. That's your fans, buddy. Maybe when they hear him play, they recognize, wow, you know, imagine the possibilities I didn't even consider when I saw this young man that I now know from hearing him play. So whether it be on a field playing the Louisville fight song or at the piano playing Claire de Lune, in a sense the melody is the same. Patrick Hughes plays so that we might hear the music of opportunity and the sound of potential. This uh, little segment was put together by ESPN. And what they said at the end here is certainly true. But what we really see when we look at Patrick Henry, Henry Hughes is a Christ-centered life, a God-centered life. I loved his, uh, his quote, God made me blind and unable to walk. Big deal. <laughs> Big deal. I need that on my refrigerator at, at home. God has allowed unwelcome circumstances and situations into our lives. He did it in Mary and Joseph's lives. He did it in this family's household. And often instead of delivering us from those situations and circumstances, he wants to refine us as we walk through them and embrace him. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is incomprehensibly sovereign, ordering all things according to his will, including our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I know that there are many here this morning who are in the midst of unwelcome situations, whether they're relational, whether they're financial, whether they're spiritual, whether it's coming on all sides. Lord, we pray that we would embrace the Savior and the gospel. Lord, we pray that this Christmas with all of the lights and ceremony and parties and festivities, that they would point us to him as our hope, as our peace. Lord, we confess to you that we often take shortcuts in our lives. And instead of longing for you, instead of crying out for you, we look for peace and security in other things. And I pray, Father, that you would free us from that kind of life and that we would have the kind of life that says to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that we as individuals and in a congregation would, as a congregation would be making increasingly radical decisions in our lives to show how great and worthy God is and how lesser everything else is. We love you, God, and we pray that you would sustain us as you did Mike Turner, as you did this family we just saw, as you did Mary and Joseph as they traveled cross-country on their own journey for the Savior to be born. We pray in that Savior's name, who is our hope, Jesus. Amen.
Let's all stand together and continue in worship. This world. 